Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast. Listen in as your host, Jimmy Atkinson, invites industry leaders to share their best OZ insights and investment strategies. From market updates to fund launches, policy news, tax mitigation strategies, and more, we cover it all here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm Jimmy Atkinson, and joining the show today is Mark Schultz, partner at Snell and Wilmer Law. Mark is a regular speaker and panelist on tax credit finance and on Opportunity Zones. He's also the author of numerous articles covering these subjects. Uh, Mark is also involved or was involved in the advising and drafting of a number of comment letters that were submitted to Treasury during the initial Opportunity Zones regulatory process. I met him recently, or I should say I was uh, reintroduced to him recently at the OZ Expo in Phoenix, Arizona, just a few weeks ago, and that's where he joins us from today. Mark, great to see you again, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Jimmy. Really appreciate it. It was great seeing you here in Phoenix, um, which was terrific for me because it was I didn't have to jump on an airplane to attend that conference. So. <laughs> Uh, so it saved me uh, some travel time. Um, yeah, I'm a partner here at Snell & Wilmer. Um, we're a law firm uh, with 16 offices, uh, about 450 plus attorneys um, based in the Phoenix office, which is our largest office. We have about 250 attorneys here in Phoenix. And we just we just moved offices after being in the same place for 30 years. Um, so we just moved on Monday. So we're in new offices and I don't have anything on, you know, on my walls yet. Um, so although you can see there's a blue tape. So we have a lot, we have a lot of blue, you know, because it's new construction. So we have a lot of blue tape everywhere. We're not supposed to touch the blue tape. That's that's supposed to get fixed. And so you can see a little blue tape on the wall behind me. So, so a blank slate for you moving forward. And it is nice. <laughs> wish you the best of luck. With your new offices there, Mark. Um, <clears throat> so you and I had a discussion at that OZ Expo a few weeks ago in Phoenix. Always beneficial if you don't have to travel too far, uh, and you just had to walk down the street, I think, to get to the conference. Well, what, what you and you and I were discussing the Inflation Reduction Act and its potential impact and how it may interact with certain Opportunity Zone projects. So I wanted to center a lot of our discussion around that topic today. And, and just to start us off, the Inflation Reduction Act was signed into law by President Biden earlier this year on August 16th of 2022. Right. And it's really a mashup of a few different priorities. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure personally if um, the the name is all that accurate. Uh, I th think it seems to be a, a little bit of a misnomer. It seems like um, the act is mostly a slimmed down version of Biden's Build Back Better plan, as well as there are some efforts in there that are designed to curb inflation. Uh, but putting that aside, we're, we're talking today mostly about the Act's Renewable Energy Initiative. So, Mark, I'll turn it back over to you. Can you summarize the Act uh, or the important parts of the Act that we'll be discussing, at least, and what are your overall impressions of it? Sure. And, and just, uh, you know, my background as it comes, how I got into renewable energy is I spent a number of years working for a very large law firm in Chicago before moving out to Phoenix. And I did a lot of tax credit financing. Uh, so we represented a number of investors that invested 
in tax credit projects, low-income housing tax credits, new markets, uh, historic tax credits, and then renewable energy. And so um, my practice out here in, in Phoenix, a lot of it is developer-based. I represent a lot of developers. And, and tax credit financing when it comes to renewable energy is super important because those tax credits represent, in the monet, monetizing those tax credits represent a pretty significant portion of your capital stack in addition to debt and then your typical sponsor equity. So um, Opportunity Zones was a nice fit because I also do a lot of private equity uh, transactions, a lot of real estate private equity. And so when the when OZs came out, it was kind of a combination for me of um, tax credit financing, and in particular, the new market tax credits, where the rules are very, very similar to the OZ rules. So it's a combination of my um, my practice in the tax credit financing space and in the private equity uh, space as well. And so that that's what took me into OZs. And now with the Inflation Reduction Act, and I'll go through different pieces of it, uh, so folks can get at least a basic understanding of how this works. Um, I see a huge fit between renewable energy and OZs. Um, and I think the Inflation Reduction Act has made it um, easier to do uh, a combination of those two incentives. Um, so that's just a little background. And and if it's okay with you, Jimmy, I can uh, provide you a little uh a PowerPoint. I can go through. Yeah, you have a you have a visual component to this. I, I did want to. I did want to warn anybody who's merely listening to today's podcast episode. If if you may be listening on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or or Spotify or or any other listening platform, you may want to switch over to the uh, visual version, which you can find on on either Spotify or on YouTube. You can find us on YouTube.com/slash OpportunityDB. Because yeah, uh, Mark, please. Go ahead and share your screen when you're ready and sure. walk us through the the deck that you have prepared for us today. Okay. So this is a presentation that um, we did with our friends from Novogratic. Mm -hmm. And this was uh, about a few weeks after the Inflation Reduction Act came out. Um, and uh, so this is, you know, I'm just going just gonna to talk about the basics uh, here. Uh, but... Um, there are two different incentives that we see in renewable energy. One is a production tax credit. The other is an investment tax credit. So production tax credit is uh, is a tax credit based on um, a certain price per kilowatt hour that's produced uh, by the renewable energy system um, over a certain period of time. And investment tax credit is a tax credit uh, essentially a certain percentage of your cost to construct the project. Um, so those are the two different uh, tax credits. Um, we saw production tax credits. We see that more in the wind space. And in the solar space, we see more the investment tax credit. Um, what has changed in the Inflation Reduction Act, well, we see the solar, for solar actually, um, we didn't get the production tax credit, but now we do with the Inflation Reduction Act. So if you're doing a solar project, you have the ability to choose between an investment tax credit or a production tax credit. So where we where we were heading um, at the time that prior to the Inflation Reduction Act passing was we we're phasing out the investment tax credit and the production tax credit had been phased out. So, um, so the Inflation Reduction Act um, restored these uh, credits and then um, added and really enhanced those credits 
really focused on domestic jobs and domestic uh, domestic content um, with the equipment. Um, we have the, the beauty of the Inflation Reduction Act is the runway that we have. So uh, these credits are now restored to the later of 2032 or the date that greenhouse gas emissions from the production of electricity in the US have been reduced by um, at least 75% of the um, greenhouse gas emissions for the 2022 year. So, so that could that could potentially push us well beyond that 2032 date. Well, well beyond. Yes, it's the potential, and and not not only that is even when that gets achieved, we still have a phase down. So it's hmm. you know the next year is still at 100 percent, then it goes to 75 percent, then 50 uh, percent, then it then it um, at that point uh, terminates the credit. So so we have a long runway, which is enough to uh, really build this industry. I mean, the renewable energy industry has is, is fairly mature now, um, but this gives us a lot of runway and it allows a lot of folks to be entrepreneurial and set up their, because the, the financing's here. And so it allows you to set up, you know, maybe you install solar equipment, but now you can uh, do a development company, you know? So it's gonna give folks the ability to be entrepreneur entrepreneurial with their uh with with their uh their business outlook and and so that's what's so great about this uh the other thing it does is it adds the ability for um nonprofits uh to get a direct pay option from the government so it used to be a nonprofit they don't qualify for the credits and so nonprofits had to just buy power from a third party uh, a third party uh uh company that would own the equipment and sell them the power. Now a nonprofit um, in order to, can get the subsidy by actually owning the system them, themselves. So they can apply uh, to the government and get a check equal to the amount of the tax credits that they would get if they were a for-profit. So that's a nice feature. And then the other feature is the ability to transfer, to freely transfer these credits instead of doing this complicated tax equity structure um, and we've done, you know, we're work, we were working on a couple uh, before the in Inflation Reduction Act passed that were very complex uh, structures involving inverted leases. Um, and, and now with the Inflation Reduction Act, we're looking at the option of just uh, simplifying everything and just transferring the credits to a third party purchaser of the credits. Um, so so that's kind of the components here. I'll just um, unless you have any other questions. Yeah, so the, the, so the new production tax credit, let's focus on that for a second. What, I may, I'm sorry, maybe you're going to get to this, but what, what yeah. is, what is the amount per kilowatt hour? For, uh, oh for yeah. Amount? So let me, I will get to that in a second. Okay. Um, and I think you're going to be covering the different, uh, percentages that you're going to yes. acquire in the in investment tax credit as well. Yes. Correct. Okay, great. Well, yeah, we'll carry on then. Okay. Um, so the nice thing here is with the um, with the Inflation Reduction Act, it provides a tax credit for energy storage. It's actually the term is energy storage technology. That's something we didn't have before. You had this ability uh, to get a, a tax credit when you combine solar and energy storage, as long as the uh, solar equipment was uh, uh, producing enough electricity into that battery. Um, I can't remember if it was 75% or 80% of the 
um, of the energy in the battery had to come from the uh, solar equipment. Now, uh, which, what is fantastic is now you can have a standalone energy storage project uh, that gets the investment tax credit. So that's something that's new. Um, big thing that we're heavily involved in um, up in our Salt Lake City office is hydrogen production. So there's something called blue hydrogen and green hydrogen and um, hydrogen production, which I don't know too much about, um, but we have folks at my firm that know quite a bit about it. Um, that gets a tax credit as well. That gets both an investment tax credit or a production tax credit. You can't get both on the same facility, but you get to pick either one. Um, and then the um, other thing that it does um, is it enhances what's called the carbon sequestration uh, tax credit. So it enhanced that. Uh, that's under 45Q of the tax code. Folks are super excited about that as well um, in the carbon sequestration business. It's got a lot of applications for that as well. Um, and now to get down to the credits themselves. Um, so the production tax credit. So what they've done here is they, again, they're very focused on domestic workers and domestic content. So they basically say, if you build one of these facilities, you automatically will get a 6% tax credit on the investment tax credit, or what it's, it's 0.3 cents per kilowatt hour. And then it's kind of, Technically, it, 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 there's a technical feature to this. It's on the production tax credit, you multiply it by this annual inflation factor that comes out, I think it's each April of each year. Um, and, and right now it's 1.7593. So that takes it for this year, um, your production tax credit at its base is 0.52 cents. And then you have this weird thing where you round up to the 0.05. So it rounds up to point uh, to 0.55 cents per kilowatt hour. Um, and then at the investment tax credit, we start off at 6%, right? So which doesn't seem like much on in either case, uh, but this is where we get into what we call the five times multiplier. Um, here, if you, if you meet one of these three requirements, you automatically uh, multiply that base credit by five times. And one of them is the size of the project. So if you're project is less than one megawatt. Um, and I've been told e AC is better. You know, the fact that they're using it on AC versus DC gives us even more wiggle room. Um, but if it's less than one meg megawatt, you automatically automatically get that five times multiplier. So that will take you to a 30% tax credit, which right now, this year, we have a 20, without the Inflation Reduction Act, we were looking at a 26% tax credit and next year was dropping down to a 22 cents, um, I'm sorry, 22% tax credit. So, so right now, a uh, small project, one megawatt is not too small. I mean, most rooftop is gonna be less than a megawatt. Most commercial rooftop is gonna be less than uh, one megawatt. So, um, so that's a, a favoritism towards these smaller projects, but these aren't too small. I mean, it's a lot larger than what you would see on a, on a home. Um, why, 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 why do they cap that at one megawatt? What's the thought process? Um, I think, um, you know, they want to see, they want to see uh, the hardest thing to do are small projects, um, transactional costs, um, having to uh, align with a tax equity investor who's um, most of these folks are more interested in bigger projects. Um, that's so they wanted, there was some preference 
to getting some of these smaller projects off the ground. But again, one megawatt is not, it's, it, this is not a rooftop residential project, but, you know, rooftop commercial um, is going to fit nicely, you know, hospitals that have um, rooftop solar, you know, that would be under one, one megawatt. So there's this preference for making it easier for smaller projects to not have such big transactional costs. And, and the big thing here to get to this, and I'll explain, I'll explain if you're more than one megawatt, what you have to meet. Um, so you can understand this. Um, if you're, if the project is more than one megawatt, then you're going to have to meet a prevailing wage and apprenticeship requirement. Hmm. So the preference was with these smaller projects and not have to require prevailing wage slash apprenticeship requirements for the smaller projects. So it's making it a lot easier uh, to get the smaller projects off the ground without having to rely on the construction contractors being paid prevailing wages. Um, Got it. The smaller projects cost more per watt to build than the utility scale, you know, the solar farms you see when you're driving on the highway and you see this big solar project. It's a lot easier to build that. Um, you don't have all the racking issues you have with rooftop and carports. Um, just simpler, just to lay uh, solar down in the desert, and you know, in a uh, in a in a rural area. Um, this, uh, and maybe, maybe in an opportunity zone, but we'll talk about that yeah. in a few minutes, yes. I think. Yeah. So, so you have this, if you're over one megawatt, you got to meet prevailing wage, uh, slash apprenticeship requirements. Um, they have this, um, safe Harbor. So if you commence construction and that's a term of art, uh, commencing construction, you can do it, um, you know, by incurring a certain amount of costs or starting some physical work on the project. Uh, but if you commence construction within the date that 60 days after uh, guidance is published by Treasury on the prevailing wage requirement, then you're accepted out if you're more than one megawatt. So so that right there, um, I've been told that Treasury might even have these this guidance out by the end of the year. So, so that might not be as um, uh, relevant uh, for a lot of projects, unfortunately. But uh, but the bottom line is, in some states, it's not going to be hard to meet the prevailing wage requirement, um, as I've been told uh, by my labor and employment uh, folks. But in other states, it could be a huge burden to meet to meet that. It's going to increase your cost. So, um, so let me just explain the five times multiplier for PTC. Um, uh, so for PTC, if I go five times 0.55, that takes me to 2.75 cents per kilowatt hour. So that's that's pretty generous right there. There mm -hmm. is some, when I talk to uh, folks at Novogratic, they do say that there is some uh, folks that take a different position that you, that that rounding up you do after the multiplier and that would take you to actually it's, I think it's 2.65 cents, not 2.75 cents. So there's some question of whether it's 2.65 or 2.75. I think it's 2.75 cents. Um, so that's what we would get with a smaller project or a meeting prevailing wage. We're at 2.75 cents. And then what's nice is we have this concept called adders. So if you um, satisfy certain requirements, you get to add to the credit. Uh, first one being, let me skip up here, domestic content. So remember I said that there's a preference for domestic content. So if you meet the domestic content requirements, then you get to add 
to that tax credit. So um, we're going to we're going to need regulations here. I mean, right now, when I talk to my import export folks, they uh, tell me that uh, they're thinking that domestic content is going to be very similar to the buy, uh, buy American uh, provisions that we've seen for quite a while now. Um, and so there's a certain percentage, you know, uh, the steel and the iron have to be U.S. source, but the um, the component parts, there's a 40% requirement that has have to be domestic. And then that ramps up to, I think it's 55% over the next few years. So they start us off at 40 and take us up to, again, I think it's 55 cents. I don't have, I don't know if I have a slide um, for the ramp up. I do not. Uh, but and this is not my area. I'm not, I'm a tax attorney. So, but you can, but, but bottom line is you can get your investment tax credit with adder number one up to 40% now. And then the, the production tax credit gets bumped up by an additional 10% of that, that number of cents per kilowatt hour. There was Correct. Some you're getting close to to how much that might be, but yeah. Yeah. You're getting close to three cents per kilowatt yeah. hour. You know, yep. so, so that's pretty generous. I mean, you know, a lot of folks buy retail energy at like uh, anywhere from like eight to 10 cents per kilowatt hour, maybe a little bit higher. Yep. Um, and uh, and if you think about that, getting almost three cents per kilowatt hour for 10 years um, on your production, that's that's very generous. So so that's something you can uh, uh, you can make the numbers work. Um, the the next um, adder here is is a place based incentive, which which you know, OZ is place-based, right? So now we're we're kind of in the same thing. It's where you build it, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is another 10% for building something in an energy community. And there are three ways you have an energy community. The second way we absolutely need uh, guidance on, uh, but, the, but the first two are pretty simple. It's a brownfield site, or it's an area that after 2009 had a retired coal facility a uh, coal-fired facility or a um, a retired coal plant, you know, and and it's based uh, for the for that coal uh, that coal facility, coal-fired facility or coal plant. It's based on the census tract. So, like the Opportunity Zone incentive, it relies on census tracts. In the United States, we have about seventy-five thousand population census tracts, and um, that's what we use for OZ uh, as we have our, what what is it, 8,800 um, opportunity zones are all based on census tracts. So here it's the same thing. So if you had a, if you have a retired coal plant, a, a coal mine, I'm sorry, um, that census tract would be an energy community or the uh, census tracts that are adjacent to that would also be energy communities as well. The the other and I would imagine that some of those may also be an opportunity zone census tract. So a lot of them. Then yes. then, then you can yeah. layer that on top as well. So and and then and then this adder number. Sorry to interrupt, but adder oh, no, number no, no. two okay. here could take the incentive up to fifty percent if you get if you get the the base thirty plus adder number one of ten plus adder number two another ten. It's it's all additive, right? So are we up to fifty percent potentially now? Okay, great. We're up to fifty percent. So yeah. that that's a, again very generous, um, and and then the next adder. I mean, sorry, uh, the third component to energy community is this um, where we look at metropolitan statistical areas. So I can't remember how many there are um, 
but they're, you know, like different metropolitan areas are considered MSA. So I'm based here in Phoenix. So it's like Phoenix and Mesa are an MSA. And then you look at whether that MSA had um, has an industry for coal, oil, or natural gas. That's kind of the key thing, right? Mm -hmm. And and then if you're not in an MSA, uh, then uh, although this is unclear, but we think it'll be based on counties that are not in MSAs. You'd look at that county and you'd say, okay, is there a is there was there an industry um, or is there an industry for um, coal, oil, or natural gas? And is it extraction, processing, transport, or storage? So if it's any of those things, then keep looking at the data. So the data would be, you'd be looking at um, whether an, uh, it's 0.17% um, of the direct employment is in that industry. And it's any time after 2009. So we think you'd look and say, you know, 2010, 11, 12, you look at all this data and say, okay, uh, in that year, did we have enough direct employment in one of these three industries? If so, then we might be an energy community. And then there's another uh, way to meet that, and that is based on the uh, the local tax base, if it came from that industry. This is an area that there it's, it's almost impossible at this point. We've looked at certain counties and tried to look at the data that's available and try to figure this out, um, whether that county would um, you know, a non-MSA county, whether that would um, uh, be an energy community. We're, we're just having a hard time figuring this out. It's going to take a lot of, it's going to take the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and it's going to take um, probably the uh, the U.S. Commerce Department and data that they have, that they'll probably have to work with Treasury and how to designate these energy communities. I would imagine, oh, the I'm sorry, there's another factor here, and that's also even if you meet that test, you still have to uh, look at your unemployment rate and you have to say, in my area, was my unemployment rate higher than the national average for the year before? Hmm. So you still have to do that too. So like opportunity zones, I'm sure there's going to be a mapping tool where you're going to look and go on it and say, okay, is that an energy community? Yes, it is. So good. I get another 10%. Got it. That makes sense. Are, are there any more adders? One more. One more. Yeah, this, okay. This one's pretty exciting. This is this environmental justice allocation. And so this is a 10% adder, could be up to 20%. Okay. Now, this is all based on population census tracts. Okay. Um, or at least for the 10% adder. And so the way this works is this is going to be some type of application process that folks are going to apply. Um, I think it's going to function application-wise, a lot like the new market tax credit. Um, there's a limit on how many projects can be uh, part of this adder. It's 1.8 gigawatts per year. And to the extent not used, it's going to carry over into the next year. I'm told by my clients that they think 1.8 should be sufficient for this. Um, but if your project is located in a low-income community, which is the same definition that we have for OZ. You know, it's the same defini definition that we had for OZ tracks that were eligible to be nominated uh, by each governor. Um, so again, this is place-based. Right, so, so there's there's 8,700 and change opportunity zones. There may be, what, 35,000 roughly low-income yeah, census 30, tracks? I'm just kind of guessing ballpark, is that right? Yeah, 39% of 75,000. So okay. um, that should all be low income communities. So 
Yeah, we're going to have at least 97, 98% overlap with OZ. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because because um, in OZ, we had that 5% carve out, but no one, I'm not aware of any state that actually used the full 5%. So it's like 2.7% used. But the bottom line is there's a very, very good chance that if you're in an OZ, you're also in a, um, you know, in one of these low income communities um, for, for this particular adder. And, and again, it's going to be an application process. Um, we don't know if it's going to be first come first serve or if it's going to be based on criteria. Um, that's, that actually is part of the comment process that we're in right now, where Treasury has asked folks to comment on these provisions. Hmm. Uh, comments are due a week from this Friday. Um, as they only have 180 days to establish this program from when the when the act was enacted. So that was August. So it, it's possible by the time that this episode airs, we will have passed that deadline. Just it's just very possible. A, a note, a note for our listener. We're recording this toward the end of October. So yes, yeah. So that so this is another 10 percent, and um, and we're this, up to 20 percent, right? Up to 20 percent. I'll explain that one too. So that yeah. can potentially take the total investment tax credit up to either 60 or as high as 70%. Am I understanding that correctly? You are 100% correct. That's impressive. That's... Percentages. Wow, yeah. <laughs> so um, the the nice thing is this 20% adder. Now this one, oh, I don't have, uh, I'm sorry, I don't have a slide for that. But that would be a situation where you're, I'll give you a classic example. You're putting uh, solar on a low-income housing tax credit project. So, okay. so that would get you the 20%. And that's not based on being in a low income community. That is more project based. And if I remember correctly, um, low income housing tax credit projects, those are uh, for uh, folks that um, make 60% or less of the adjusted median, median income for the state. Um, but it, it's more expansive. If I remember correctly, we can go up to 80%. And still get that twenty uh, percent adder, so you might see more workforce housing, which is probably more in line with what we see in OZ. You know, so yeah. some of some of these OZ multifamily projects may qualify for this particular twenty percent. Um, so now we're up to seventy percent if you can get that. You know, so so at that point we're at a seventy percent credit, and now the question is, what do you do with the credits? You know, if you can generate that, and. So well, yeah. yeah, let me ask you that. Uh, how do you monetize those tax credits up front? Because if I understand correctly, there's there's some sort of uh, marketplace or or ability to transfer the the tax credits. How does that work exactly? Uh, correct. So so what they changed is this ability to transfer the credits. Now, there's there, there's something called direct pay. I'm not going to go into that only because these are that's for nonprofits and governmental entities. And, and you know, that's not going to work with OZ. Hmm. Uh, but I'll talk about transferring of credits. So they added this ability. Um, the way it was before is you would do this tax equity deal where you would bring in a tax equity investor that would invest cash in exchange for credits. So it would be credits, cash flow, depreciation. That's those are the three things that they would get because they this tax equity investor would um, be in our ownership structure, you know, and and so it was very complicated. And so the tax equity investor would come in, make it make a, an equity contribution and then um, 
uh, get a uh, allocation, 99% allocation of the tax credits, um, get the depreciation deductions, or at least some of them. And then they needed some cash flow um, in order to meet what we call the economic substance test. So these deals were super complicated. They had to stay in the deal for five years. And then you had this, um, you had this, uh, uh, this call option um, where they, you know, they would uh, um, elect to be bought out for uh, fair market value. They, their interest, and again, we get it, we're getting into some real technical stuff, but they would go from a 99% interest to a 5% interest. We call it a partnership flip. And then um, the sponsor would buy them out at fair market value of a 5% interest, which is nominal compared to the fairly nominal compared to the original equity investment that they made. So very complicated. I mean, what I'm describing is probably super, sounds super complicated. These deals were very complicated. And now it's it's easier in the sense that you just transfer the credits. So that industry will is, is evolving as we speak. Um, I think it's going to be a lot of the same players that buy state income tax credits. A lot of state income tax credits are transferable. That's what this is going to be like, where you're going to find a, an investor that you can transfer those credits to, and they're going to pay you. They're not going to pay you more than a dollar a credit. They're going to pay you probably anywhere from 80 something cents a credit to 90 cents a credit. Um, a lot of that might be might be dependent. That price might be dependent upon your ability as a owner of the project to stand behind an indemnification uh, with the uh, transfer E of the credits because there is a five-year recapture. So if you were to take the system out of service at any point during those five years where the system was destroyed but not replaced, um, the transfer E of the credits, they can, they're going to get hit with recapture. And so they're going to want the seller of the credits to be able to stand behind an indemnification. So probably the more credit worthy you are, the higher the price of the credit that you're going to get. Um, sure. But we we project the markets can be 80 to 90 cents, somewhere in that range. And um, it will be uh, a lot simpler of a process, uh, but probably less subsidy. So, you know, when you bring in a tax equity investor, you know, they're paying for depreciation, cash flow and credits. So they're going to pay you more per credit of subsidy than you're going to get if you just transfer the credits. So. Uh, any questions on that? Because this is this is a loaded concept with lots and lots of uh, interesting uh, tidbits and, and and different things to uh, discuss as it as it pertains to OZ. No, it is it is indeed. Uh, no, I did want to see if we could um, move the conversation along and 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 talk now specifically about how this act and particularly how these renewable energy tax credits. Uh, are going to interact with opportunity zone projects? What kind of impact might it have on opportunity zone projects or, or how can opportunity zone projects take advantage of, of some of these new tax credit programs? Well, if I could show you another slide, let me just show you kind of, so this is what I think we're gonna see on the transferring of credits. Okay. Um, and I think this is where OZ can really come into play. So um, I envision this special purpose entity here to be a qualified opportunity zone business. And uh, the sponsor equity investors, let's just say that this is a qualified opportunity fund, okay? Mm -hmm. um, I could see a situation where we call these EPCs. So these are, it's, EPC stands for Engineering, Procurement, and Construction. 
it's it's like a general contractor. So you have a you have a uh, solar company that builds the project, sells that project to a qualified opportunity zone business. Okay, mm-hmm. that qualified opportunity zone business that enters into a power purchase agreement for twenty five years. Um, and the panels are warranted. Most panels are warranted for 25 years. So we typically see a power. And, and to, to be honest, I see appraisals that tell me that the panels are good for 35 years. Hmm. Um, but we have a long-term revenue source for these for the qualified opportunities on business. And now what we have is a situation where the credits can be sold to a third-party investor who pays you for the credits. And that qualified opportunity zone business, when they um, get cash for those credits that they sell, that is tax exempt income. So, so they're not going to be taxable in the sale of the credits. And what we think is the nice thing is it's going to increase your tax basis for the owners of the qualified opportunity zone business. And then that increase in tax basis will flow up to also the investors in the qualified opportunity fund. So now we have that. Um, and again, not to get too technical, but we have that basis increase, which is always a factor um, in OZ deals, because when you invest in a qualified opportunity fund um, on your deferred gains, you're not going to get any uh, tax basis until you have to recognize that income uh, that you just deferred. And that's going to be um, at the end of 2026. Right. So, your, your, your basis is typically zero until the zero. end of 26, right? Yeah. Zero. Unless you have debt. Um, <laughs> unless... Unless you have debt, you you have no basis, so it's it's hard to you can you can get allocated the losses, um, but you can't use those losses, so they just sit there unused until basis uh, appears at the end of 2026. Unless you have the right type of debt structured into these deals, so you get basis for um, you get basis for borrowings of the qualified opportunities of business if it's structured the right way. So here. On the sale of the credits, we're going to get this basis increase, and and, and, and and you get it much sooner than twenty six. Yes, you right? get it. You're going to get it. You're going to get it as soon as you sell those credits. You know, yeah. so you're going to have that uh, basis increase, which is nice. And the beauty of it is, renewable energy, unlike real estate, where it's twenty seven to thirty nine years, uh, twenty seven years on multifamily, thirty nine for almost everything else, the depreciation. Renewable energy right now is bonus depreciation. So this year and next year, it's 100% depreciation okay. in your place and service. And then after that, you're t- it's five-year property. So so it's quickly, it's it's a quick, it, it the depreciation uh, period is a lot uh, faster than you're going to see in real estate, even if you do these things called, called cost-seg studies that a lot of people do. So there are going to be a lot of losses to transfer. And so in this, um, in this um, structure here, you're going to see the losses are the tax credit investors not ending up with the losses. They're going to stay the the depreciation deductions are going to stay um, in this entity and allocated out to uh, the owners of the entity. So the question then is, can you use those losses? Because most investors, it's going to be what we call a passive loss. So they'll be able to use that loss against passive income. They're going to get allocated this loss, but they're they can only use it against passive income if you're an individual. If you're a C corporation, so if you're like a, you know, like a car dealership and you're structured as a C corporation, you can use those losses against both your passive income 
and your active income. So there's three types of income. There's portfolio, passive, active. Two types of losses, active or passive. So for a typical investor who's not in the solar business, those losses are going to be passive. If you're an individual, you can use it against your passive income. If you're a C corporation, you can, you can use it against your passive or active income. And if you're a widely held C corporation, like a one of the big financial institutions, um, if you're a widely held C corporation, you're not even subject to the passive loss rules. Hmm. So that's why in the tax equity world, we typically see in the tax equity world, the, the usual suspects that invest in tax equity deals are folks like Chase and US Bank and Goldman Sachs. I mean, these are widely held C corporations, so they don't have to worry about passive loss rules, which also apply to credits as well. Um, so, so that's the thing that's so interesting here is, you know, if you go and invest in, in you're investing in the economics of the solar project, which gives you this, like almost like an annuity, right? It's this revenue stream with, with usually great off takers. You know, a lot of times there are municip municipalities or, you know, you see a lot of them on uh, Walmarts and, you know, very good credit worthy off takers buying the power and their long-term agreements. And so the nice thing is you got this revenue stream coming in. So you know this money's coming in. You're going to get a bunch of losses. The question is, can you use those losses? Now, here's the beauty. If you can't use the losses now, you will have passive income coming in. And that is from the revenue stream from the power purchase agreement. So that will be passive. And so at the very least, you'll be able to at least use those losses to offset the income you have coming in, it's a question of how many years it's going to take to use up those losses. You know, So if it's seven or eight years, at least you can look at that and say, all that income coming in for seven or eight years is going to be uh, tax-free to me right. uh, because, because I don't have to pay tax on it. I've got the losses to offset that income. Then here's the bonus. Um, we get past the 10-year holding requirement. And now I go and sell this solar equipment with the power purchase agreement that has 15 years left of revenue, um, at least, and there might be some extensions. Um, then I go and sell this, uh, equ this equipment and power purchase agreement. And now I'm looking at what are my tax consequences? Because mm -hmm. let's just say I took all the losses. So I got to use the losses. So that's terrific. Um, the way it works with equipment is if I buy a piece of equipment for 10 million, depreciate it down and then go and sell it for 4 million, I have depreciation recapture that I have to pay at ordinary income tax rates. And, and as we know with the opportunity zone incentive, even depreciation recapture, as long as it's not inventory, um, as long as it's not a sale of inventory, um, when I go and sell this equipment at the end, um, to a, you know, to someone on the secondary market, and there is a secondary market for um, these these projects, um, when I go and sell that, it's going to be tax free. I'm not going to have to recapture that that depreciation. Right. So that's the beauty of all this. And, and there's uh, no there's no tax on the gain either. There's no tax sale. on the gain. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that so part's obvious, I guess. But I had to yeah. mention. It. <laughs> so so it's really like if you think about it, this is a huge home run, and it's a, it just seems like such a good fit with the Inflation Reduction Act and the opportunity zone incentive. It just seems like a good convergence of the two different incentives. Absolutely, because uh, so, so much of the uh, the Inflation Reduction Act's 
renewable tax credits are place-based and those places, those census tracts often overlay uh, with opportunity zones, it seems like a slam dunk. You might as well uh, put some of these types of deals into opportunity zones. So that was a great walkthrough, very thorough. Thank you, Mark, for, for walking through us, um, walking us through both the renewable energy tax credits that are available through the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, as well as how it can be applied to a typical opportunity zone deal. I, I know you're working with a number of clients who are working on deals like this, solar deals. Do you have any specific examples of any deals that you're working on that you'd like to kind of share with us today? Just a couple of anecdotes, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, I've got a deal in Puerto Rico that's both OZ and uh, solar, and it's an interesting deal. Um, it was a deal that we were structuring using what's called an inverted lease, which is a very, it, it's a complex way of uh, transferring the tax credit. So you've got your, uh, you got your entity that owns the solar equipment. And then um, we have this master lease where we lease it to this, this other entity that's owned by the tax equity investor and then the sponsor of the project. And they have this special rule in the renewable energy area where um, you, if you have this, this lease, you can pass through the tax credits at fair market value of the equipment. So it's, you know, so you would get an appraisal for the equipment. It allows you to pass through those tax credits um, based on, you know, we were looking at 26% of whatever the fair market value of the uh, fair market value of the equipment was. And then at that point, that entity, this we call it the master tenant has the power purchase agreement and it's a complex structure with the inflation reduction act um we're looking to simplify things so um we um and, and again it's an oz deal so we're looking to simplify it and using something like what i i put up in the structure chart and it's a it's a nice size project um energy in puerto rico is super expensive it's it's like 30 cents per kilowatt hour some it's up there you know so solar makes a lot of sense there um you know we're you know i don't know what the price per kilowatt hour is is going to be on the power purchase agreement but let's just say it's 11 or 12 cents you know that saves folks a lot of money you know knowing that their power for 25 years is going to be at that 11 12 cents per kilowatt hour range compared to what they pay there because i think a lot of their energy is diesel generated mm -hmm. um diesel fuel and so that's super expensive especially right now so yeah. So that's an interesting project, an exciting project, a very much needed project. It's in an opportunity zone as 97% of the island is. And, um, uh, you know, maybe that would be the classic inflation reduction. So yeah, that's true. That might that's, mean that, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah. That might actually make the title of the act accurate in that, in that specific case. A and any other uh, examples, maybe one or two others? Yeah, I have, um, I have a deal that's on tribal land. Um, and uh, that's an interesting one that we're structuring because um, the we've got this, we've got a lot of things to look at because we got a direct pay option for tribal ownership of, of um, projects. Uh, but we, you know, we'll probably structure that with a third party that will sell uh, energy uh, to a business located on uh, tribal land. And so there we've got, there we've got OZ, we've got, um, low-income community so we can take that 30 percent up to 40 percent um we don't have the energy community um we may have domestic content 
you know, so that can get us up to 50% on that one as well. And then there's a bunch of different financing options because it's on tribal land as well. Hmm. Um, so, so we have for our debt financing, we have a, a bunch of options as well. Um, so very impactful project uh, as, um, you know, as most stuff in an OZ is, you know, impactful. Um, we'll talk about that as well. Uh, but that's an exciting one too, because, um, um, you know, because of the off taker here, I can't go into too much detail because of confidentiality, but that's sure. an exciting one. Sure. Well, hopefully we see a lot more of these deals come to fruition over the course of the next several years of this program. Uh, I wanted to talk uh, briefly toward the end of our conversation here about the Novogradic Opportunity Zones Working Group. You and I are both members of that group. I just saw you on on the monthly call yesterday. Uh, how are you working with the team at Novogradic on any of their OZ Working Group initiatives? Well, I just uh, marked up um, a letter that we have going to Treasury on the working capital safe harbor. Um, we are seeing a lot of this these days where we've got projects that are in uh, are installed mode because of uh, financing, right? Because interest rates keep climbing, um, uh, cost production, co uh, you know, construction costs have gone up significantly. It's it's not easy to find a guaranteed maximum price contract. Um, so a lot of folks, they um, have a working capital safe harbor plan and they're 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 going to be off. Right. It, either a timing issue, a pricing issue. And so we have comments going to Treasury on specifically what we think the word substantially consistent is, because you've mm. you've got this working capital safe harbor is incredibly important for a number of purposes. One, it, it sets forth your expenditure requirement and how fast you have to spend the money of cap, spend the capital contributions that are coming in from the Qualified Opportunity Fund to the Qualified Opportunity Zone business. You have a 70-30 test, a good asset test. Um, uh, we we uh, test that at the end of the working capital safe harbor period uh, for almost all deals. And, and so uh, that, that working capital safe harbor plan is super important for that reason. And then basically when you have to finish your project, um, when you have to get to completion. So it, it has those three components to it. And so um, it's, you know, it's it's important to be able to get some direction from Treasury on just real life examples on situations where people have created these working capital safe harbor plans and things have changed, um, especially things that were unforeseen, you know, such mm -hmm. as maybe um, I don't have enough money to build that original project. I was going to build a 250 unit residential complex, and now I got to scale that down to 200, you know, units. Um, you know, there there's so many different situations that are now taking place where folks are saying, "I'm that my working capital safe harbor plan doesn't say what we're doing. It it says what we were going to do when we created this a year ago, but it's it's no longer applicable." And am I acting substantially consistent with that plan? Because if I'm not, then I don't have a good qualified opportunity zone business, you know? Um, and so um, we're talking about different situations where maybe projects are not feasible. And so they, you know, maybe the project's no longer feasible. I wanted to sell my land now and I want to do a different project. And so can I kick the money back up to the qualified opportunity fund and redeploy it 
Um, if I do that, I'm obviously not executing on the original working capital safe harbor plan. But again, that project's no longer feasible. So I'm still going to do something that's impactful in an opportunity zone. It's just not going to be this project. And it was unforeseen at the time that I created the plan. And so that's a letter that we hope to send to Treasury within the next couple of weeks. And so I just marked that up over the weekend and talked to the, our, our friends over at Novo about it. And so um, hopefully we'll get some guidance there. Yeah, good luck with that. Uh, that's that's very important. Of course, I'm sure we can spend a whole episode talking just about working capital safe harbor, but we'll leave it at that for for today's episode and maybe save that conversation for another time. Uh, before, before you know, before kind of round out our discussion today, Mark wanted to ask you about community impact. Is uh, the Opportunity Zones program one of the main criticisms of the program? Is that it's not doing what it was promised to do. There hasn't been enough community impact. What are your thoughts? Has there been enough community impact and, and how can we how can we prove that? Well, we've seen some terrific projects. Um, we've, you know, one of our clients, another plug to someone out there is Caliber mm -hmm. and they've done some very impactful projects, behavioral health, uh, charter school. Um, and so Others have as well. They're not the only ones that we've seen with some very impactful projects. Um, it's very important uh, to, we, we do this in the new market tax credit arena. You have a grand opening, you wanna show off your project, invite your congressional reps um, in, so that they can see what this incentive has done for their, for their districts. And um, new markets is kind of implicit, like everyone out there you know, a lot of it is you have a tax credit investor and what we call a CDE, they're involved in that project. So, you know, they might be the one sending out the invitation to the congressional rep. Um, in the OZ space, we just don't see enough of that. We don't see enough of those grand openings that you get to attend. You're all proud of the project, but you look around, you don't have the um, congressional reps and the, you know, local politicians. And so we need to do that as an industry. If we do that, then these folks can see all the good that the incentive does. Um, because what I've been told is when a lot of the stories you see out there are hit pieces. And when I've when I've spoken to some of these reporters, you know, I'm like, well, how come you're not writing about the good that it's doing? They're like, well, that's just not news, right? Hmm. It's it's yeah. Maybe it's just the 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 day the the present day uh media that we that we have these days, they, you know, it's it's not news unless it's a hit piece, right? So um, so it's up to us as an industry to get these folks in to see the good that the projects are doing so that they can take that back to D.C. when we're asking for an extension of the incentive. We have, you know, folks on board that, you know, can see and, and can tell their colleagues. I looked at that project, it, you know, it's in my district. If it wasn't for the OZ incentive, I'm not sure that would get off the ground. Look at the good work that it did. Yeah, I'm hoping this podcast can play some small part in in telling more of those success stories over time. Uh, well, Mark, it's been a pleasure speaking to you today. Thank you for all of your insights into the Inflation Reduction Act and specifically renewable energy tax credits and how they interplay with Opportunity Zone products. If we have any listeners or viewers out there watching us or, or listening to us right now and they want to learn more about you and Snell and Wilmer, where can they go to learn more and to get in touch with you? Sure. Website is swlaw.com, snellandwilmer.com, or some people say Southwest because that's where a lot of our offices are based. 
Um, my phone number is 602-382-6358. And my email is mschultz, M-S-C-H-U-L-T-Z, at swlaw.com. Fantastic. Uh, for our listeners and viewers out there today, of course, I will, as always, have show notes available for today's episode. You can find those show notes at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And there I will have links to all of the resources that Mark and I discussed on today's show. And please be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast listening platform to always get the latest from Opportunity DB. Mark, again, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much today. And thank you, Jimmy, for everything you do for the industry. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by Opportunity DB. You can access our show notes by visiting opportunitydb.com forward slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. 